Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 38. As always, joined by the three amigos here. We got uh, everyone's favorite boomer with his uh, fancy new white shirt, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, and of course, Rich Diaz uh, on a boat, Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Uh, welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, so I think last last week we had Keith with, uh, what are we calling it? The Mountain Fever. And then uh, we've got Rich, who's on a boat, the love boat, somewhere on a cruise. So he might be dipping out. He's got a, apparently there's a safety, mandatory safety meeting. So uh, we might lose Rich mid-recording here. Um, what's, what else is and going you might on? Hear, you, might hear, uh, you might hear announcements to do with uh, life jackets and masks and all kinds of stuff. So there Alarms you go. So going apologies off. in advance, gentlemen. Thank you for coming. You have to wear a, a mask if you go overboard. How does what? Probably, probably. Probably. We've been tested. We've been tested. You have to be vaccinated and you have to wear a mask even when you're on deck. <laughs> the world even is when you're outside on let's the change, deck. Let's change the subject. In the middle of the ocean. Uh um, well, guys, I, I was in the mountains last week for, for a few days. And uh, you know, I grew up uh, at sea level my whole life. I had sea all around me. My dad was a fisherman. Like I love the sea, but I really love the mountains too. Like it was uh it was pretty good. And, um, you know, I think I'll just grab at some point, just get one of those vans and grab Willis and, and head off and not come back. Maybe, maybe, uh, you take your gold bars with you. Take the gold bars. I share that and with your Mrs. Microphone. Ice. Well, I shared it with Mrs. Ice cap and she said she's going to miss Willis. <laughs> I miss Willis. I've never even met him. What else is going on? He's big, on. uh, big Colorado avalanche win. Oh yes, congratulations. Yeah. Oh, I had a, we had a lot of our uh followers, supporters there uh DMing me on the win. So it was kind of funny. Um stuck around for game six. And um what else is going? We haven't missed it. We haven't missed a beat. You know, Rich is on the love boat. Uh Keith is in the mountains. I'm actually getting married next week. So in I'm in Iceland, actually. The love boat is is, is in Reykjavik, which is a really cool town. Um, we partied on Tuesday night and the sun is up. I know it sounds dumb because people always talk about the, you know, the land of the midnight sun, but it's, it's one thing to, to say, it's another thing to be out at 11 o'clock pounding pints on the, in the bar and just be, it's as bright as, as it is in Halifax. So it's like an excuse, an excuse for you to keep going. Hours. Yeah, exactly. It is, but. Anyway, one of the so biggest, yeah, one of the biggest parties uh, in the world is up on the, the west coast of Sweden. Is it Gothenburg? I think I might be mispronouncing it, yeah. but they had the Midsummer's uh, party up there, which I think it lasts for three days. Like those guys are, uh, they really know what what they're doing. Maybe that should be our uh, next Looney Hour event. <laughs> yeah, oh, <I'm> down. <laughs> yeah. See, Boomer, Boomer going to bed at six p.m. as usual. So. Uh, there we go. So let's get on, guys. What's happening yeah, what, in the world uh, today? Markets. Well, yeah, and no stuff. 
yeah, I mean, we'll just go to, we'll go around the world as we always do. Um, I mean, we'll start start domestically here. Um, so I started a, a, a regular monthly show with uh, John Pasalis, who's a really excellent realtor out in Toronto. We had that Yahoo Finance show together. So we've been kind of sharing some information back and forth. Um, so it looks like the GTA, Greater Toronto there, will have the uh, weakest number of home sales for the month of June in uh, 20 years. Um, so obviously, as you can see, those 5% mortgage rates are really starting to bite Canada's uh, largest housing market in the GTA. And then if I look here in Vancouver, uh, Greater Vancouver home sales are, are coming in really quite weak, but it's actually the bulk of the impact is actually coming in the Fraser Valley, which is our suburban uh, housing market. So we're on pace to have the slowest June in just over 20 years. Uh, so that sort of pandemic trade, right? I think that pandemic trade of work from home, remote work, you know, low interest rates, pushing up the suburbs. And it's, I think it's the same as like that, that tech play, right? It was like, Hey, listen, like get long, all these, you know, get long zoom and Peloton. And, and as you're seeing that market sort of obviously get flushed out, I think that the suburban market here is, is where you're going to see a lot of the pain. And that's the same thing in GTA. Like, like if, when I talk to the you know, realtors over there, it's that suburban market um, that went up so much. And actually, funny enough, I actually have one of my good friends coming to town next week. He runs a massive, I wouldn't say massive, but he runs a very well-respected. I won't, I'll leave the name out because if, if I give the name, everyone will probably know who it is. But um, he runs a finance firm uh, in Ontario. And so he's coming here and he's like, you know, every every year he puts on like a conference where they kind of do like these tours of the housing markets and kind of like feet on the ground. They basically do a sentiment check on the housing market. And so he's coming to Vancouver and he wants to, he's like, oh, okay, let's go set up all these crazy pre-sales and let's go tour them. And, and let's go, go, let's go look at West Vancouver again. Uh, you know? And I was like, man, cause like last time he came West Vancouver had like, it was like, this huge crash basically that happened there all these luxury homes basically dropped 30 to 40 percent and i was like man i was like there's no there's no bubble there this time i said the bubble is out in the suburbs so um long-winded answer of saying uh very interesting because i think there's always a lot of parallels to what what is happening in the equity market which is like as you see that rotation and i think we're seeing that rotation now post-pandemic in the suburban markets so um, that's, what's on my radar. I don't know, Rich, I don't know if you're, you're watching anything on your uh, vacation there besides slamming pints, but <laughs> I mean, the thing that stood out for me was just more bad news from Germany. Um, I can't remember the exact number. Um, I think it, they lost 133,000 jobs. Um, and I think ex what was expected was like 5,000. I could get the numbers wrong. Forgive me, but yeah, it's I think definitely you're right. 100,000. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really quite something. Um, but that contrast that with the latest tick in industrial confidence in Euro area, which actually sort of ticked up. I mean, it was still, so obviously we're off the highs clearly, but, um, I think that there's sort of like, um, a bifurcation of, um, of sort of different, um, of different economies in Germany. I think, I'm uh, sorry, in, in Europe, I think Germany is doing, you know, pretty badly, um, and other parts of Europe, um, Spain, I, despite it's like another sort of high in the inflation number is actually doing okay. Um, I was looking at um, Italian industrial uh, production X construction it, after like years and years of doing really, really poorly. It's starting to grind ever higher, which is a mystery for an economy that's so kind of screwed up. Um, you know, others like the Euro areas services component for the confidence, you know, they have 
retail, they have construction, the industrial confidence, and another one they have is services. And that just keeps holding up. And so, you know, maybe uh, this, I, maybe I'm starting to think that the services section, which is probably doesn't, um, is not necessarily um, affected by um, supply constraints and stuff is doing okay. And then Germany just continues to, to crater. So. Uh, Keith, I mean, I don't know if you have any comments on this, but I just wanted to touch on, we chatted about it last week, actually. And I chatted with your, your buddy, Keith there, Michael Nicoletos, um, put it up on my YouTube channel for everyone. Let's go check it out. But we kind of just were chatting about the Eurozone, you know, and their discussion about, uh, what well, the, the anti-fragmentation, right. Basically, you know, the, the concern about what's happening with, you know, it Italian government debt, um, obviously yield spiking over there. Uh, putting that country under a lot of pressure. And so the ECB uh, came out with an announcement today, actually, uh, that they're going to be channeling cash from north to south in, in a bid to cap spreads, basically to cap yield. So basically what they're saying is the ECB is to reinvest the PEP proceeds where spreads have widened. Uh, so basically they'll buy bonds from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Greece, with some of the proceeds it receives from maturing German, French, and Dutch debt in a bid to cap uh, interest rates. Uh, Keith, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, or maybe if you can even, uh, for maybe those that are a little bit confused, I don't know if you can simplify that and, and, and how, you, how you perceive this from a market uh, perspective as well. Well, from an overall perspective, I mean, I've been following these uh, ECB now for a long time, and, um, you know, they, they continue to come up with one new piece of duct tape after another one year after year crisis after crisis and it, it still doesn't solve anything so i mean the like the, the the illness they have is that they have too much debt and they're not able to get the private sector to buy it so by default the public sector which is the ecb you know they, they have to buy it all and and all these programs they come up with like they're continuing just to treat this the symptom and the symptom of bad debt is that you have to continually pay more to borrow more. So the, these programs, they do nothing. Like they, it might, you know, calm things for a little bit. But if you're in Northern Europe, you know, one, one way to get the, uh, the spreads to try to, uh, you know, converge back a, a little bit, um, you know, maybe they just slow the rise in spreads for Italy and German debt spreads and, and, and the Dutch, you know, they, their, their spreads go higher or something, but th this is nothing like this, this doesn't fix the overall problem because the overall problem with, with Europe is, is as, I, as I mentioned uh, before in, in 08, 09, there the are commercial banks were just stuffed with, with bad loans, but they weren't able to write them off because if they did, they had no new private equity coming in to re replace it, replace that capital. So they had to keep it on their books. And um, so because of that, you know, you, I remember a few years ago, I think it was a Canadian firm, they set up this uh, European bank ETF. And the whole investment thesis behind it was that, hey, it's, it's incredible valuation. The price to book was like, you know, 75% lower than everyone else. And of course, if anyone really knows, you know, their investment, uh, analytical tools that we use on the fundamental size you know if, if your price to book is completely different than everyone else it just means the book value is not correct you know it's rich shaking his head of course because we, we all know that's the game that works so you know that the, the short answer is europe is still screwed you know it, it is still the economic fantasy land called europe 
and uh, which I think it just ties into another point that I'll mention on in a second. I mean, maybe Rich, did you want to comment on the? Well, yeah, I just I mean, it's, it's, book? so you know, so it is an economic fantasy land. Um, I, I like Europe better than Keith does. Um, probably because I, I enjoy Tempranillos and, and um and, and cheap pasta. But the I think the the technical term I think that they're dealing with is this concept we discussed briefly a while ago, which is this impossible trinity. It's like a really good pickup line, according to Steve, right? We talked <laughs> Here we go, one. yeah. Here we go. But it's, it's really important that people sort of get why Europe's always going to have this issue um, until they just concede and share a budget balance. Um, oh, sorry, share a, um, a government balance. Um, they just share, you know, government spending unabashedly throughout. And the, the, the impossible trinity is free capital flow, fixed exchange rate, and sovereign monetary policy. And you can only pick, you know, um, one side of this triangle. You can only have free capital flow and fixed exchange rate. Um, and then, or you can have free capital flow and sovereign monetary policy and fixed exchange rate and sovereign monetary policy. And that's the problem with, with, um, with a country like Italy, which probably needs a significant internal or external devaluation. Um, but because it's, it's fixed currency is attached to Germany, which needs a, probably a currency um, revaluation, but upwards, you have a situation where the only way to square that circle is for significant amounts of money to be transferred from the north to the south. But the problem is German people in their, I would I'd probably rightly are not interested in having their tax dollars um, shift from Germany to different parts of the periphery. This was true in 2011, 12 and 13, 14. Mario Draghi, I think it's the 10th anniversary of him saying, you know, whatever it takes. And they sort of, you know, dealt with this issue through the back door, but really they just kicked the can down the road. There are other examples of this kind of dislocation in productivity or um, and in budget balances and current account balances. You know, I would argue that Germany and Italy are probably closer together in GDP per capita, productivity, maybe even culture than, let's say, Mississippi and New York City. But those two states are part of a, um, you know, a United States of America and in their constitution, and they have a mandate to transfer wealth from New York and California and Texas and other rich parts to the poor parts. And so that's just sort of well understood. It's part of what it is to be a country. Canada has the same thing too. You know, the rest of Canada pays for Halifax and Nova Scotia. That's just the way it is. But in, in Europe, that's sort of not the deal. It's not what people signed up for. And until they deal with that specific issue, you'll always have, um, you'll, it is the fantasy land. And so the, the, the sooner they address that issue head on, the better it will be. Now the question is, will that ever happen? People like Keith have probably rightly suggested that it will never happen. I'm sort of, I'm an optimist. So I think eventually the Germans will just <laughs> suck it up and pay the other countries. But I don't know, that, that's the sort of a more technical sort of angle to that whole problem. Just curious while we're on that point, does anyone know how much like Alberta pays from their uh, slush fund there to, to the rest of Canada? I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know the number, but I know they, um, you know, Alberta's been a, a net contributor you know, to the, whatever that scheme is called. Well, they just Canada. basically send their oil proceeds to the rest of Canada, essentially. And then everybody in Canada says to, to get rid of the oil patches. Yeah. And then a few years ago, you know, when they had, you know, they struggled in the oil patch, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends up there and, you know, they, they really struggled. And, 
it's just my perception, but the perception, you know, from national media, you know, and in, in Toronto and so like no one empathized or sympathized with him at all. It was just wrong, completely wrong. So, um, you know, that's one thing that makes Canada a great country is that we're going to have parts of the country that's working really well at times. So the parts that are not working so well, but we, you know, we all have, you know, different, you know, lifestyles and cultures and stuff like that. But we've always pulled together. But yeah, I just think Alberta's getting a bit of a wrong, a bit of a wrong, wrong end of the stick or raw deal with it. So um, I don't know what the number is. Um, well, hey, I mean, it sounds like Rich. I mean, it sounds like uh, our buddy JT might be listening to to the Looney Hour here uh, because Canada is talking about expanding infrastructure uh, in, in oil and gas here. Um, it may expand an LNG infrastructure to help Europe. So there you I go. Mean, that's this is the this is the thing that Canada can like. I know we're switching gears really quickly here, but this is the thing that Canada can really do. We can use our energy resources as a force for good in this world. I think we should never sort of forget about that. Um, but there's one. There's another thing I wanted to talk about just because it sort of brings back um, a topic we discussed at the end of last week's podcast. Hopefully not. Not hopefully people stayed awake for the last section when we talked about the PMIs, and um, so China. Um, so we, you know, every country's got a PMI, um, and China's obviously one of the most important economies in the world. They have a PMI. Now, some people might discount its reliability. I I think that the PMI is is sort of a difficult thing to screw with. Um, and you know, both the manufacturing and non-manufacturing PMIs have snapped back significantly over the last month. Um, you know, one is the, the non-manufacturing PMI bounced all the way back to 55, which is a really, really solid number. And the manufacturing PMI is now above 50. So this is obviously a, sort of the legacy of the, the perpetual COVID <laughs> policy, but just, sorry, a really important sort of data point that but, I think people, listeners should know that that's happening. So they are talking about, well, not, I mean, I guess I'm assuming that's predominantly just because they're reopening their economy. I don't yeah, know if you guys exactly read right. that the, uh, China's announced uh basically that they might be um they might have a covid zero policy for the next five years i don't know if you saw that i um, saw him <laughs> guys so. i th- you know you know i love rich for having so much faith in data and numbers and everything but i, I just think it's you know the chinese are awesome because they're what's the population in china i have no idea 1.4 1.3 the, 1.4 okay i knew it was one plus but they're able to calculate their GDP to the penny within hours after the quarter <laughs> is over, and there's never any revisions to it. Whereas everywhere else in, in the world, where you know, with you know, Statistics Canada and, and you know, the Bureau of Labor and, and the U.S. and you know, all, all all these entities, you can never get it on time, and there's always revisions and discussions on what the numbers should be. Unlike Rich, by the way, Rich, I think you are much too kind to me with my optimism for Europe. You know, my, my target price for the euro, it's, it's, I think we're about 105 points away from where it's going to go, which is zero, by the way. I, I have very little confidence. We'll put it this way. The only way the eurozone can even remain as it is right now, the world needs to recover significantly Debt has to stop growing. Debt has to be paid down. People have to be happy. They have to start liking each other. The Chinese and the Russians and the Americans have to start like, we need this perfect world. And maybe in Europe, they have that perfect world and, you know, in, in their fantasy area. But again, just to reiterate, 
I have zero. I love Europe, by the way. There's lots of, you know, lots of fun things to do there. The food is great and all that. But economically and financially, they are, they're really at the end. And, and you know, the Japanese are in a much better position than Europe. And, and that's telling you something. So that, that's my love for the- Okay, uh, let, me let me just push back. I think you need to concede that if tomorrow the German population said, we want to send <laughs> trillions of dollars, euros, sorry, not trillions, sorry, uh, like, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 20 years or whatever to the Southern part, uh, to the periphery, it would change the math on a lot of this stuff. I think that that's just part and parcel of the euro area as a problem. So I think if they rectify that specific issue, but the other thing I would say is, you know, so much of these, Euro these Southern European nations, their GDP comes from tourism. Um, and Portugal is like 8% France is, you know, another 8%. So the lower and lower their Euro goes, the better, <laughs> the better a hey, tourist might, destination it becomes. And who knows? <laughs> I might be, I might be going there. Got a working on a honeymoon plan right now, baby. So I'm hoping that currency exchange rate, let's hope the, uh, the Can Trudeau bucks can hold up here. The Canadian dollar to the Euro is at a seven or eight year high. So, you know, That's you should fantastic. take advantage. My first trip to Europe was in 03, I think it was. So the euro is at around 88 cents USD, 89 cents. It was good. Yeah, there pretty good. Go. Um, so, but with, you know, it, again, um, just being pragmatic, what, what Rich said, if, you know, if the Germans did this and the Italians and Spanish did that, those are pretty big ifs. And I'm telling you, there yes, is I'll like, concede that's true. like 0% plus the smallest number that, you know, Rich can calculate with all of his spreadsheets <laughs> and everything else. This ain't going to happen, guys. And, and so the other thing as well with, with Europe and what's very different from Canada and, and, and America. In Europe, they would have to combine all of the, they don't have a federal debt issuance. So in Canada, you know, we had federal government bonds, right? In, in America, they have treasury bonds. In, in Japan, they have JGBs and, and so forth. There is no federal bond issue in the Eurozone. So the only way that can happen, you have to combine all the debts. And Northern Europe will never pay for the Italians and all the debt they borrowed, right? It's, and at the same time, if, if the Germans turned around and said, hey, yeah, we're going to bail out Italy, the Italy's might say, no, no, thank you. We'd rather be out of here than living under the thumb or, or the boot of the Germans. Like, there's a lot, lot going on there. So, um, anyway, that's... But if you're bearish on one market, it means you're bullish on another market. That's, that's just yeah. the way that, that markets work here. Maybe so we can what, turn over... Yeah, turn what, over to market-wise a, a little well, bit. Oh, I was going to um, say, what are we bullish on then? So, I think... Uh, GICs? I, oh, no. <laughs> so, let's just talk about the Canadian banks for a second here. Hey, GICs um, are at, you can get a one-year GIC for, for 4%. That's actually not a bad number. I mean, you know, Keith said no, but, you know, one year, Keith, the, the, the Bank of Canada is not going to, Canada's not going to go bankrupt in the next year, is it? <laughs> 100K uh, CDIC insured. I always look at things and say, why is the bank offering X percent for capital, you know, for, for your money? Keith is more of a stable coin guy, 10% <laughs> yields. That's one of those crypto things, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I missed that boat. Um, For the best, just, I suppose. Uh, maybe he was a bit lucky. Just, just you no know, ignorance helped out on that one. Um, 
but right now, I mean, so the, the I mean, the narrative that we've been talking about for a while, and and again, I'm every day we look. Okay, is this playing out? Is it changing? Every day we're now increasing more evidence that the probability of the global economy slowing or going to recession, it, it's it's getting higher and higher all the time. I don't mean it's at 90%, but whereas it was low single digits a few months ago, now I bet you now we're at like 30%. And it's it's coming, guys. And I think if we do get this slowdown, which I think potentially can can, can happen, it's it's gonna be a pretty dramatic uh, hard break on the economy. So then you have to ask, okay, how, what happens with markets in that situation? So first of all, that's extremely positive for government debt. So federal government, Canadian bonds, uh, not provincial, the provincial bond market is, has no liquidity. So it's, it's kind of hard to do that one. But treasury bonds in the US, um, you could also see Japanese yen do a, a complete 180 in, in the market. So all these things are starting to shape up. So this morning, I, I know the Canadians, we have, you know, we have monthly GDP numbers and you don't take them at their absolute value. You take them for the trend and where they're moving. But the number that just came out for May, it was, it was a negative print. It, it surprised people, but a lot of the energy numbers sort of screwed up with it. But I'd push back on that and say, there's the old joke that Canada's GDP is called the, uh, the random number generator. Um, because they ended up having like these massive revisions like a month or two later that like, I don't know, I, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in them, obviously, but I mean, it's something worth discussing. But uh, even as someone that might be myself a little bit more bearish at times, like seeing some of these GDP prints in Canada, it's almost you almost have to fade that noise. A, a little bit, but you're going to the point is, though, that the, the we're starting to see more data now, like the German data this morning on employment, like that's, that's not great news, right? It's, it's not good. Um, you're starting to increasingly see more of it. And, you know, you're, you're also starting to see, I'm seeing in different research reports as well. And other guys that know they're saying, hey, Keith, like the, the inventory accumulation that's taking place on the retail side, it's, it's significant right now. It's building up. So one of the guys I know, he was saying, he's saying, hey, Keith, you know, we could get this situation in the fall. Just as the economy is slowing down, all of a sudden retailers, their inventories are stuffed to the gill because inventory build has been, a, has been one of the key contributors to uh, economic growth over the last nine months. But we could have a situation where all of a sudden the economy slows. Uh, blue collar workers, they'll continue to do well because it's such a demand for trade and all that stuff. The service side, so people working at, you know, the hotels and restaurants, you can see that all of a sudden fall off, you know, and anyone looking to buy a nice new Patagonia, Patagucci jacket, you know, you might get one on liquidation sale. Coming there you up go. In, in, Keith, in the Keith, is, Keith is licking his chops over there. I know. It's, you guys remember that movie Whiplash that came out a few years back with the drummer? No. J.K. Simmons was, was the was the teacher. Anyway, great movie, but boomer. I never saw. This... Is that a good movie? Yeah, movie? he's he's okay. one of my most favorite intense characters I've ever seen on, on a show. Uh, but anyway, without giving away the whole storyline, you know, you get you know just at, at, you know he he is who he is, and at the very you don't like him at all, by the way, and that's the sign of a great actor. You like you if you really dislike a character. 
you know, wow, you know, this, this actor's doing a really good job with it. But at the very end, all of a sudden, you get this whiplash effect. The movie just does a complete 180, and everything that he wanted to see, it finally happened in the end. I think we could get this whiplash effect in, in the economy coming up, where everything's been going so well, all of a sudden, we come to a hard stop, and, you know, central banks, they have to stop raising rates and, and things like that. And all of a sudden, inflation starts ramping up again on, on the commodity side. And like everyone is so confused and markets are bouncing everywhere. I, I just think we have that environment coming up. So, you know, if you look at investment returns year to date, we'll go through some of those numbers as well. But just think of all the markets that everyone have, has hated over the last, you know, nine months and the markets that they've loved. You can see that flip to 180 for, say, six, nine months or so, and then it'll flip back again. So I think it's, it's a real good opportunity for, for people who have the, 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 the tools and analytics available to potentially place some of that. So we're excited. I think that's cool. I, I have a question so the, uh, for, for maybe Rich here, uh, Rich and Keith. But So I just noticed that uh, uh, corporate high yield spreads um, broke or continued to sort of widen um, above their two, two, uh, above their December 2018 levels. Of course, that was the last time the Fed pivoted uh, you know, they're dovish pivot. So I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I've noticed it too. I mean, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the right, it was the right call to make just as far as, you know, um, sort of teaching listeners and, and, and just honestly, just the discussion internally between the three of us to be sort of on the lookout for signals of things that Keith has highlighted. Keith's a bit more bearish than I am. Um, I think he always is. Maybe it's because it's age. <laughs> what are you going to do? Wisdom. But I think that the, the point the point about the the spreads going up for sure. But just to keep in mind, the spreads are still well within average, but they never stick around the average, do they? They always either blow right through or go down. I would just say like there's one a kind of you know I'm a, I think I'm a born contrarian. I don't know why. Maybe because um you know I, I maybe I can't I can't tell why. But um you know and and I just feel like on the recession front, even though I, I definitely see the signals. I'm definitely worried. It's, you know, Keith's point about the probability going from low single digits to, you know, who knows, 30, 40%. I get it. But this would be like, you know, when everyone is convinced that something's going to happen in the markets and everybody is pushing in that one direction. And, you know, when you're reading it on CBC and Bloomberg, I'm always very, I always skeptical. And I'm just like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we've got this wrong, you know? And I think it's also true for markets. Although I, I agree that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity in the bond market, as people start to price in weaker growth and price in cuts that are might be coming after all these hikes, you know, the, the equity market in some cases is down 30, 40% in some, in some sectors. You could say, Rich, of course, it could call, fall lower. But just on a, but historically, when you get these massive declines, it could be, it's, it might be possible that the risk assets have actually already priced in what we're about to feel economically. And so I wouldn't necessarily go out and sell your equity portfolio at this stage. You know what I'm saying? Like the market is, is a forward looking indicator. It's a, you know, it's a discounting, um, it's a discounting, um, it's a discounting indicator. So it's all, it may have already discounted what we're about to feel sort of in the, in the lagging economic data, whether it's, you know, um, weaker retail sales or weaker labor market or higher credit spreads or whatever. So I've just, so that's the, th I just, I'm always, I think the market's, you know, smart, you know, and it, it'll, it has obviously sussed out what's, what's going on economically. And so that's why, you know, when, when I hear this talk about recession and I, I'm just always a bit, maybe I'm just like, actually, maybe now's the good time to start thinking about rotating into some 
things that have been beaten up and and anyways hey, is the atlanta fed the most bearish fed does anyone know so the atlanta fed does this thing called the gdp now which is like uh they they basically try to aggregate like hundreds if i'm not mistaken at least dozens of different indicators into some sort of forward predictor over the next quarter two quarters is that that the one you're talking well well, yeah so the u.s atlanta fed gdp now cast just came out um so they said q2 is going to be negative one percent versus a previous estimate of 0.3 percent growth so um, so that'll be that'll be two quarters in a row so the interesting story again like people don't People don't understand there's so much competition with everything. So the, the Atlanta Fed came out with this multi-factor model to, to, to predict what GDP is going to be. And um, it was just as accurate or more accurate than what the private sector was, was estimating. And, and of course, if you know the way that the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is, is put together, so you have like the, the Atlanta Fed, the San Francisco Fed, and, and Minnesota, but New York has always been the, the king daddy there. And the New York guys get, they get ticked off. So they create their own version of the Atlanta GDP now. They come up with their own name for it. So even within the Fed, you got the New York Fed and the Atlanta Fed competing with each other to come out with a, an estimate of what GDP, again, it's, it's a complete mess what, what's happening. Um, I remember, yeah, the, it was so yeah, good. It's good. It, it's crazy. But Rich had a very good point. And just for all of our listeners, this is something that we've talked about quite a bit as well never the the economy and financial markets are never in sync so just because a recession is coming notice i just said is coming so i just changed my mind within like three minutes that's just to annoy rich um but just because the probability is increasing it that doesn't signal to you that hey equities are going to go down further um if a recession happens earnings are definitely going to come down so then you have to see what happens afterwards. But just think about this. You know, we've had a pretty substantial correction in equities right now. And if, if nine months ago we told you, hey, you know, the economy would be doing okay, earnings would do great, you know, and, but up to June 30th, uh, then you'll start to see probably a recession increasing. What would you do? You know, you would think that it was after June where equities would come down, whereas, you know, it, it already started. But so, so again, we're urging everyone, do not believe that financial markets, especially the stock market, is going to follow the economy because if not, um, Steve might get a few phone calls on the, on the pod. Hey, subtle reminder that real estate is your largest asset class in the world and not bonds, not equities, it's real estate. And so we're still kind of, you know, closely monitoring that to, to see and when it's going to roll over. I mean, I think it's, it's certainly rolling over from a sales volume and activity perspective, which will have sort of economic uh, knock-on impacts um, when, again, your largest asset class kind of grinds to a halt. But, you know, you're not yet seeing those those year-over-year price declines, but I think we're certainly seeing month-over-month price declines in, in large parts of the market. So, and that's just, not, that's not just Canada. I think if you, you, you know, you chat and follow a lot of what's happening in the U.S., housing market as well um you know you're seeing lots of price reductions and, and there's some really good data out from from the likes of redfin and, and whatnot so um yeah yeah that's that's a tough one though it's one of those asset classes like um that just feels like even if you don't have the fed put you have like this like government put that is like implicit in the residential housing market and like i again i'm not like advocating and saying that's right or wrong but it's actually quite amazing like so for example like here in canada right like you think about one thing so um you know 
what what is every government we talked about this in the show too and everyone's like that's like conspiracy theory it's like no like governments are actually opting to fight inflation with more stimulus checks which is like absolutely insanity um but like we had krista freeland um krista freeland here i can't I, rich is putting on a life jacket uh the love boat's going down krista freeland's pumping out 8.9 billion dollars of fiscal stimulus which i think i think what is it 500 dollars or a thousand dollars is going to go out to a, uh 1 million renters in canada are just going to get a stimmy check in the mail to pay their rent that's basically like a landlord subsidy I think we need to give Rich an opportunity to say, uh, I, I got to go. I'm sorry, boys. Uh, thank you very much for accommodating me. I love this is my favorite, honestly, my favorite day of the week, just because I get to t- chat shit with you guys. So thank this you. is hilarious. Sorry, I, I think this is going to be a lot of memes going around with, uh, with that jacket, man. You look, you look fantastic. Okay, gotta go. Okay. Good luck, sir. Gotta go. Gotta go. Bye. Bye. Enjoy the love boat. Shout. And then there were two. So you get a load of Rich. Yeah, this is my favorite day of the week. I mean, give me a break, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, thank God that guy's gone. Um, like Saturdays are fun. Sunday mornings, you wake up, you know, you get to do things. But for real, you know, it looks Thursday. good. Keith is a uh, Friday night at the uh, at the Ice Cap household pizza night. Yeah, we've had some good ones. Maybe we should do a uh, a loony hour appreciation. So over the, well, over in the Maritimes here, we have a thing we call like a kitchen party. Do you guys have that concept out west? Never heard of it. That sounds like a very small town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here here in Atlantic Canada, you know, and um, you know, if if you have a party, like no one hangs out in the, the living room or the whatever, right? Everyone just hangs out in the kitchen for some reason. So yeah, well, um, first of all, everybody in Vancouver lives in six hundred square feet, so that's uh, that's part of the problem. Well, I'm sitting at 8,500 here, so I have a lot of lot a big kitchen. But uh, are you, yeah, maybe your, no, come on, is your house 80? No, your house is not 8,500 square feet. I'm just messing. I'm just messing with you. Yeah, but you know, we have to do something. Uh, maybe we do uh, an informal, you know, ice cap kitchen party sometime. You get like 24 hour notice, and everyone will come. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, we are a little bit off the beaten track here, but I mean, I will say. We are actually planning uh, quite a few more Looney Hour events, um, working with some sponsors on that as well. So uh, there will be certainly a lot more in the works. But um, yeah, I, w- I want to run through uh, some of the performance numbers for your today because today uh, we're recording this on, on Thursday, everyone. So June 30th. So I thought you were going to go over the performance metrics of the ice cap uh, asset management portfolio for all the clients here. Uh, for regulatory reasons, we. Uh, I can't do that, but I can tell you that uh, we. I can give the, I can give the thumbs up, stamp of approval. You don't have to say. Okay. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, for regulatory reasons, we just can't go pumping out on air performance numbers and all that stuff. But uh, we we we've done. We, we're quite pleased with how we we did so far this year. Uh, however, let let's talk about because we've been beating the drum quite a bit about the bond market, especially and how the industry has been pushing conservative investors into bond funds, which because the, the bond funds couldn't find any yield, they would push them into high yield bonds, emerging market bonds, maybe some convertible type hybrid securities. But so far a year today, here are some numbers to think about. So the, uh, the largest balance fund managed by the bank in Canada, it's the bank with the blue shirt. So it's $5 billion in this fund. The MER is 2.2%. 
And so your management expense ratio for everybody that's following along. So they're charging, hold on, they're charging 2%. 2.2 on 5 billion. Like that's, that's, that's insane. Some, yes, of course. Cause like, is. if you think it's about it, like money. you're like, I mean, you're, so let's just, cause I want to walk this backwards for maybe the typical listener here. Um, cause we do have a vast array of people. Some, some people that watch the show, I think are extremely well tuned in and sophisticated and others are just really just trying to learn. Um, and so your management expense ratio of 2.2%, let's just say like, I mean, Keith, you're telling me like, what would these guys typically target? Like, I think like they're probably targeting what a seven to 8% return. Well, they don't. Like, so in, in the investment world, I mean, they're like, not targeting can... something, but like, that's yeah. maybe what someone can hope for, let's say. And so all of a sudden, if you're giving, you know, let's say you're, you're hoping to get 7%, you know, over the next, over a 10 to 20 year period. And if you're losing 2% of that annually to, to just fees. Yeah. So all of these funds, remember, they're, they're all structured based on how markets reacted in the 80s and the 90s. So for this one fund that I'm, I'm talking about, um, I don't know what, what the inception date is on it, but it, it's been around since the 90s. I, I can tell you that. Uh, so as and, and this, all the banks, they're all structured the same way with these balance funds and same with the non-banked owned investment firms and so forth. So it's like the 60-40 split between equities and bonds. But the bond portion is put together so that it's always going to return between, say, 4 and 8% a year. That's the way it is. So uh, when, when interest rates, when long-term interest rates are continually declining, that means the return on your bonds are going up. And then when, say, the Bank of Canada rate is between, say, 4 and 8%, as an example, you know, you're always going to be earning at least that much in yield. So, so getting that 4 to 8% return from your bond portfolio from, say, the 80s to 08, 09, like in that range, um, like it, was, it was pretty easy to do, right? It, was, it wasn't hard to do. And then you slap some equities on it, you wrap it around and dress it up and have some real nice posters in the branch and you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty good way to make easy money. Um, but that doesn't work anymore because the world has changed, but these funds. So if you're, if you're managing this fund or you're on like the investment committee, and I'm telling you these investment committees, they have like 40 people on it. They, they sit around this big oval, uh, table, uh, and they're allowed to participate in the investment committee. And then behind the table on the perimeter room is another group of people who are allowed to attend. I kid you not, they're allowed to attend, but they're not allowed to speak. And then you have another group maybe huddled in the corners who are there just, just to observe and stuff like that. But anyway, but, but, but these armies, so you're sitting on a $5 billion fund. You're collecting 2.2% a year in management fees from it. And you're, you're, you're tied to this anchor of a bond market where you can't do anything with it. What do you do? If you're the bank, you, you can't shut it down. You can't take this dramatic shift because all of a sudden, just say you wanted to liquidate, say, one and a half to two billion out of the Canadian bond market. And say the other banks decide to do the same thing at, at the same time. So now you're looking at, say, five billion maybe coming out. And then the pension funds say, well, yeah, we're going to do this. The whole thing just doesn't work. But that's not what they tell you. So instead, so you're you basically, what you're basically saying is they're, they're, they're too big to pivot. It's, it's, it's because they, they, they're, they're, they're a market maker. Yeah, they're exactly, they're, they're too big. And uh, I remember chatting with uh, like a financial planning person at one of the banks uh, a few years ago. 
and I said, you know, something like, you know, you go in to do some banking, you know, we all need a bank to do stuff. And I said, how does it work if I want to buy a mutual fund? Can I buy that fund, you know, a point to one? They say, no. I said, why not? They said, well, we need to do your goals and objectives. Okay, let's say we do it. This is what I want. And then finally, the person confided in me and they said, we're only allowed to put you in balance funds at the branch level. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why can't I buy this equity fund or something else? No, we, we've been trained now. You only get the balance fund. So if you walk into a branch, no matter how big you are or how odd your investment objective is or anything, you put it into you know the meat grinder and what comes out, what plops out on your plate, you know, and it sounds like a plop on a plate as well. Like, it's not nice, guys. You get this, like, this friggin' balance fund. So here we go. So year to date, this balance fund is down 14%, 1-4% year to date. So that's, that's what that investor is getting. Um, some of these bond funds, you know, they're down 15%. So think about it. Most conservative investors are down 15%. Preferred share funds are down 14%. Emerging market bonds are down more than 20. Junk bonds, high yield are down 15. Like this is, it, everyone who is an investor this year, we, we've all lost money somehow. And some people have lost a lot more than others. And it's, again, it, it's our view because we're going to have periods where we're not right, of course. But if, if you recognize the world has shifted, the conservative investors should have been able to avoid these, these double digit type losses that are out there. And I don't know how they make it back. Like it's, it's, it's tough out there, Steve, but we have another six months left for the year. So let's see, let's see how yeah, they scramble. I mean, it's kind of fascinating though, because I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, the, the, the people that, I mean, I mean, it's just this, the system and society and financial markets are ultimately, I mean, let's call it space, babe. And it's very similar in the housing market. That's kind of set up and designed for, you know, the wealthy to, to get wealthier. Right. I mean, like, do you have to think about like, who are the people that are going in and walking in at the branch level and buying, you know, a mutual fund? They're typically the kind of people that aren't necessarily as financially educated or they don't have the net worth and the resources to, you know, hire, let's say someone like yourself or someone even that works in, you know, that's because a lot of these, a lot of these advisors will have minimums, right? Like the, the good ones will have minimums of, you know, 250 K 500 K minimum investment. So you, you're kind of forced, you're kind of angled into, um, you know, the bank's mutual fund. If you only got 30, 40, 50,000 bucks to invest, that's kind of where you go. And so you kind of get, you know, mediocre results, I, I think, because you're hiring, you know, medi mediocrity. I don't know. I mean, I, I always find that fascinating. I think what's, what's really great today, though, is that, you know, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of good independent managers available around the world. And, but they're only, you know, good and great because because of two things. One, they've recognized the world has shifted. But but second of all, the tools, mostly through ETFs, they are available to give you the opportunity to get exposure to these new markets that are out there. And you know, there's a lot of bad ETFs, a lot of great ones in the middle of the road. Like it's not just as simple as, you know, buying a passive fund. But the world has shifted. And because, you know, I'm a believer in capitalism 
and there are a lot of great ETF companies out there and manufacturers, especially down in down in the US. You know, they're they're coming up with these responses to the world has shifted. Like as an ex- and, and then other places don't. Like as an example, um, one of the big Canadian banks, they had an agricultural ETF a few years ago. So not in, not in you know, uh, like farming stocks or fertilizing companies, but the actual agriculture, like corn, soy, and wheat, for example. And they closed it. And, uh, you know, we had a position in it. And at the time I said, why are you guys closing this? And they said, well, it's, it's not performing very well. People are not interested in it. And my response was, yeah, but that's okay. You know, I'm holding it for a, a different reason. Because at some point it is going to turn around because the world will, you know, will, will shift that way. But that's not the way most of the industry, uh, the way they work. Like I know a lot of the guys on the ETF side and, and they'll tell you, they'll say, yeah, Keith, we'll create 10 products a year, 10 new funds, throw them against the wall. And we know nine of them will fail. So they know that they're going to sell these funds. People will put money in it. They won't do well. Then they'll just close them but one of them is going to do really well and attract a lot of capital. So like, it's again, like it's, it's not fair because the world has changed, but for people who are able to identify as some of these markets are available right now, we we do have a chance, right? Like there's a, is a good opportunity out there to, uh, you know, at at least avoid these, wait till the June 30th statements come out. (laughs) What is it? I know a lot of guys will be just their heads down. On the advisor well, side. I mean, yeah, but that's, that's ultimately the goal of, of, of policymakers, right? I mean, I think it is, this is what, you know, people are talking about now, but like real estate too, is like, I think that they implicitly, like the, I think the Fed is trying to engineer at least a soft correction in housing prices because that, that does kind of destroy a lot of discretionary spending, right? Um, you know, for example, we just had um, the Canadian bank regulator, OSFI, uh, came out and updated their rules regarding home equity line of credit. So they're, they're, ba- I'm not going to get into the, the, the technicalities of it, but basically what they did is they kind of, they kind of tightened up a little bit around, you know, how much sort of credit you can readvance to households. And that will begin at the end of 2023. So they did a slight tightening of home equity lines of credit. And I always look at that and say, well, yeah, I mean, I think this is the regulator response of looking and saying, well, look how much like house prices have inflated over the last 24 months. Like, again, if we're, if we've got an inflation problem, I mean, that probably only gets worse if people start immediately tapping into that home equity because I just that's more purchasing power for these people to go and spend. So, yeah, I just think like policymakers are, are clearly, um, you know, tightening the screws from from all different directions. You like how the language has again, I, I, I'm just fascinated. I just love I, I think the industry, you can really win for markets. You can see when these slow shifts are taking place and. Again, I just I just love it because I think it's very clear when you do see it. So as you know, you just used the word soft landing. So that phrase wasn't being discussed two months ago. But now over the last month, more and more, you know, the Fed is talking about it. And, you know, the mouthpiece for the Fed, which is the Wall Street Journal, they're introducing it and, and so forth. And I saw an article on Bloomberg the other day. They're saying, yeah, it looks like we will achieve a, a soft landing in, in the U.S. And, you know, the Canadians will have the, the same stuff. But now they're admitting that a soft, you know, for, for everyone to know, a soft landing means growth slows significantly, but not enough to create a recession and not enough to, to create, you know, dislocation in, in the economy and stuff like that. Um, and trying to and- stick that landing, like these guys are all guessing. Like, I think we have to like, I think we all have to 
understand that central banks are quite literally guessing. You even look at the, you know, we talk about their data, right? Like I think Powell was out this past week uh, at a conference saying that, you know, we were using, what were they using? The, the Phillips curve model or something. I, I don't know all the technicalities around it. the Phillips curve. Oh, we got it wrong. He'd be saying like 34 to 35 economists at the Fed, you know, had inflation sub 4% and, and 34 to 35 were wrong. It's like, and these are supposed to be the smartest guys in the room that like have all this, data and these models that they've created and and they got it wrong and so i i think even at this point they're guessing so when they come out and say we're going to try to engineer a soft landing like these guys are guessing they're they're hoping that they can stick a soft landing with with the the, the controls that they have in front of them yeah you know it, it, they're they're making their best guess that, that that's what they're doing with it and uh, you know it, it is a thankless job um I don't think, well, I don't think, I know none of the central banks have ever been able to generate a soft landing. So uh, for them to do it this time, it will be, it'll be absolutely incredible. So I, I just don't think they're able to do it. The, the other thing I think uh, listeners need to understand, appreciate it, especially with, with the Fed, because we always talk about the Fed first because it's the reserve currency for the world. Um, There's a lot more than financial market and economic inputs going into the decision. You have to understand the geopolitical side of it as well. And um, whether people understand or realize it or accept it or not today, the, the US and, and China, they, they are at war in, in different ways. Um, and one of, the, one of the tools the Americans do have is the dollar and with, with rates. So, uh, you know, whereas the, the Fed will only talk about, you know, inflation and labor and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I do know that behind the scenes, there's also the, the implicit agreement that an aggressive Fed raising rates when China is struggling domestically, um, that that's bad for China, right? That that's not good for them. So again, there's a lot of things going on right now. There's a lot of loose screws. Um, I don't think anyone's really trying to tighten them up. I think some are trying to take them out, really, and shake everything. But uh, it, it, again, so that just tells me that the probability of more stressful events occurring is, is quite high. And I, I think that creates a lot of opportunities, especially on the currency side. So, uh, you know. Do you have an outlook on the Canadian dollar? Yeah, I think longer term, uh, the Canadian dollar will, will, will become very weak relative to the U.S. dollar. Uh, on cross rates relative to, say, euro, yen, and sterling and stuff like that, it, it will do a lot better. So, um, but, you know, be even given even given the uh, levels of household indebtedness here, and I know everybody likes to talk about a housing bubble, but yeah, so you have to remember though, Steve. Like, if if there's a crisis anywhere in the world, money will flow into the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, that will happen. If, if that crisis is happening and it doesn't affect the Canadian economy too much, so the banks stay okay or they're not wobbling, the housing market just gets sluggish, then you know, it's, it's not a bad because the, you know, the whole oil exposure you know, for Canada is a petrol currency. So that it'll do, it'll, it'll do okay in that scenario. If it spills over and that all of a sudden you know, banks get in the trouble, and just remind everyone, so for Q1, you know, RBC, they, they had a negative charge to their loan provisioning uh, portfolio. So which, which means instead of, instead of reducing earnings by amount 
but I think they might lose in, in loans. They actually clawed money back from it. So they create a profit out, out, of, out of the past. Um, the banks will report earnings again now at the end of August. That's when the next reporting cycle will come up. And that's where we'll start to see if the banks are starting to see stress and pressure on, on their loan portfolios, specifically mortgages. So it'll be a pretty big one coming up. Yeah, I mean, I will say this, at least like from from my perspective, um, you know, from the housing side of things, like I think that housing is such a, such a lagging sort of product that, you know, like you're looking at the banks and you're saying, okay, well, like, you know, I, I think they've, they've already come out and there's been these, you know, reports have been published that they are genuinely concerned about price valuations in the suburbs just because like how quickly they went up, right? Like it wasn't just cheap money. It was just like a pandemic that drove people's behaviors to, to basically leave the inner cities. And so the valuations there, while they are coming off rather aggressively, you know, if you look at them on a year over year basis, right, they're still positive, they're still up. And so like, like real estate doesn't get marked, you know, mark to market, right? Like, it doesn't happen in real terms. Like, you know, when you're looking at the equity market, you can you wake up every morning, you look at the ticker and say, okay, prices are down, you know, 13 and a half percent, you know, year to date, but it's like, like in the housing market, it's just, it's not a very efficient pricing mechanism. That's why it takes a while you know, for house prices to correct, right? I mean, house prices can go down for two, three, four years. Um, and they can go down, you know, six and a half percent a year for the next four years. Like, so housing, because housing, again, the way that it works is just like, people are very people, it's an emotional product, right? People are selling their primary residence that they've lived in for the last 15 years. They, they are very reluctant to cut their prices. They always think that they have the best house in the block. And so, yeah, they might look and say, well, I don't care, Mr. Realtor, that sales are down. This My neighbor sold for this price two months ago, and I want that price or, or very close to it. And so they're very reluctant to cut their prices. And and a lot of times, it's, you know, sellers might sit on a price for six months, then reduce, sit on that price for another six months, reduce. And, and then, you know, a year and a half later, you finally sell uh, at a much lower price. And, and so, yeah, I just find that housing. And if you're looking at the, at the bank's books and that's why, like, you know, people always talk about, Oh, when's the wave of foreclosures, like foreclosures take a long time to play out, uh, especially in Canada. Right. Like, so if you miss, if you miss a few payments, like the banks will give you some time to catch up, they'll send you a letter, you miss a couple more payments. Okay. Well now they're starting these sort of court proceedings. And then in, in BC where I am, uh, from the day that you miss like your first payment to the day that you get foreclosed on and have to hand the keys over to the new owner, like that's typically on average about an 18 month to 24 month process. So when we're talking about like foreclosures increasing in like most of Canada, we're talking like that's probably an end of 2023 story. Yeah, that, that's in the housing market, but for banks and their loan portfolios, you know, they, they, they try to be proactive with it. Because you don't want to have, you know, no expenses for bad loans and all of a sudden it hits and you got to wipe out, say, two quarters of earnings. Instead, banks like to put aside a little bit every single quarter so then we'll catch up for it. Uh, so for us, you know, we, we will be watching the, um, you know, the Q2 numbers that come out and RBC again, like they'll, they'll be the big one because like everyone took less of a provision in Q1. So you want to watch, see which direction did it go? So what I mean by that is everyone increased, um, everyone put money aside for a rainy day for bad loans, except RBC. 
they, they took money out of the rainy day uh, cushion or, or, or safety net. So uh, we'll we'll see this coming, and it'll it'll give us a good sign of where they anticipate you know things are going. How do you? I mean, just curious to wrap up the show here, but how do, how are you looking at the Canadian banks in terms of I think like the index now for for Canadian, the, the the big five? I think year to date they're down about twenty percent um, between those between those big five. <laughs> do you think it gets cut cut another twenty from here? Well, if we if we go into a recession in, in Canada and around the world, the banks banks will come off because banks are levered entities. So whereas, just say you're a big industrial company, you might be levered, say, two to one. So you borrow all this money to, to build a factory and stuff like that. You, you, I know you amortize it over time and all, all that stuff. Uh, so you get, you get operational leverage or leverage, whatever word you want to go with, with that. Banks are levered anywhere from 10 to 20 times. That, that, that's what they are. So when, when times are good, you know, banks make a ton of money. And you know, why, why shouldn't they? Because they're levered. And here in Canada, they have no competition. It'll say, well, that's not true, Icecap. They have lots of competition. No, no, they don't. There's five of them. Like if you're a TD, you want to take market share away from Scotiabank in this one area and you try to do it, you're going to lose it somewhere. Like it's, it, it, yeah, it's all I mean, there. It's, yeah. you, could say, you could say the same for the telecom business. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Telecom, death, by the way. But you know, as of right now today, you know, Canadian banks are in trouble. Like they're not, it's not like 08, 09 or anything like that, but they are exposed to a housing market that potentially could correct. And we won't go through all the reasons for that. I think everyone is well aware of it. But if we do get this external market event taking place, um, you know, it, it, it could come out pretty quickly. And then people will all of a sudden, Canadians will say, oh, wow, you know, Kenya banks, you know, they, they are exposed. But as of right now, everyone in our lifetime, you know, that we've all made a lot of money on our bank stocks and it, it's been fantastic. But the risk is there that, you know, something goes off. So, you know, when, when you make an investment, there's always risk involved. That's why you have to control your exposure to it. Make sure you have liquidity, make sure you have an exit plan and, and stuff like that. Um, but again, like from a cultural perspective, the majority of investors in Canadian bank stocks, they, they do not see the risk. And that's because they've never experienced it before. And we're just saying, hey, if, if it happens, oh, buddy boy, <laughs> you're going to feel that at that point. And it'll affect the whole market. I mean, the, the Canadian dollar will, will come off and stuff like that. But again, if that's happening, it, it likely means the rest of the world is, you know, is off, is off, uh, off kilter as well. well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, big kitchen party coming up, right? That's big kitchen party at the Ice Cap household date to be determined. Um, but Keith, Keith will be firing up some pizzas. So uh, one no, hour, not, one hour notice. That's it. This is yeah. be like a one month uh, thing. Everybody show up to the Ice Cap Palace. But um, no, in all seriousness, we are uh, we got you know a lot of, a lot of big things planned for the Looney Hour here. Uh, we are again working with some sponsorships, and uh, we will be having a lot. I think a lot more events, giveaways, uh, really just continuing to try to build the community. Um, you know the the feedback has been amazing, and um, you know as as Rich said, I you know I think this is this is one of my favorite times of the week is just sitting down to record this, and um, yeah, so we really appreciate. Everything 
everyone's ongoing continued support. All we ask is that you share this episode with at least, you know, one friend that's continued to build this, uh, you know, one by one by one. So uh, as always, uh, we'll see you next week.